yeah, I, I'm finding the some of the bleaker stuff actually quite funny. Like the fact that my two review pile is just like a, a total film list of the most depressing movies ever made, and I'm just like. <laughs> It's just quite so. funny though, like, oh my kickback time off, time to really stretch out and relax with a, another fucking Lucas Moodison movie about sex trafficking. <laughs> it's so typical though, isn't it? It's... Yeah, yeah. It's bleak. <clears throat> oh man. Well, not something that you can say for the film that we're about to watch today, we're about to cover today. No, that is true. This is a, this is a fun romp, isn't it? <laughs> It is, yeah, absolutely. Cheesy, yes. cheesy fun romp, yeah. Yes. Welcome to Pop Screen listeners. Uh, we are the Geek Show's podcast covering the good, the bad, and the bizarre of movies either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for Byline Times, We Are Cult, and of course, the Geek Show itself. And I've been joined by. You've been joined by Mark Cunliffe. I'm also a writer for The Geek Show and We Are Cults, and I have written for Arrow Film. Uh, the latest one is Robin and Prince of Thieves, which was out last November. Um, and I've also got a chapter in Scarred for Life Volume 2. We, we are back in Scarred for Life territory. We are in Britain in the 70s, albeit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a very different register for this week's show. Yeah, I don't think there's anything that's particularly scarred me from this film, although I do have incredibly fond memories of watching it um, as a child, usually over the Christmas period, and I, and it was again on this Christmas as well. So it's, mm. it, it's, it regularly pops up as the, the selection box of BBC schedules, I think. <laughs> yes, it's Escape to Athena. I have to admit, when you pitched me the idea of covering a 70s film called Escape to Athena I assumed it was going to be about people out shopping for a poster uh, but no uh, it's a second world war film with an, an incredible cast it must be said, uh, Roger Moore Telly Savalas, Stephanie Powers Elliot Gould, David Niven Richard Roundtree Claudia Cardinal, Michael Sherd and the reason we are here today, Sonny Bono Yay! <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's it's a, it's a Lou Grade production, which means it's hugely starry in in cast. Um, I've got a little quote here on my phone from uh, Stephanie Powers. Yeah, it says the names had been needed to raise the money. Think about it. I was there to catch the TV audiences and younger men. Richard Roundtree to bring in the black moviegoers. Niff for the older generation. Rog, because he's handsome and a very, very big star. Claudia was there to catch the older roving eye. Elliot, because, as he said, he was under contract. Sonny already owned most of Las Vegas, but still desperately wanted to be an actor. And Telly, (laughs) I love that bit. And Telly, well, nobody quite knew why he was there, except that the film was set in Greece. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think kind of sums up the weird sort of, what are we package holiday of uh, of stars? What are we all doing here in uh, in Rhodes? <laughs> yeah, one for everyone there. I would think. I think she's missed a trick with Elliot Gould. Mind. I think Elliot Gould is there because all of those all star 
World War II films made in the 60s and 70s always introduced someone who was inescapably post-war, who could not have yeah. existed in the 1940s. You know, the classic example is, uh, was it Donald yeah. Sutherland in The Dirty Dozen? It wasn't The Dirty Dozen, it was Kelly's Heroes. He is in The Dirty Dozen. Kelly's Heroes, a that's small it. Run. Yeah. Kelly's Heroes, he's the full-on hippie, isn't he? The full-on Vietnam that's hippie. That's it, yeah. And yeah, that's a, good com- that's a good comparison because there's a moment in Kelly's Heroes where they do the big... Uh, walk down the um, the street towards the Nazis, and there's a moment mm. where Donald Sutherland sort of looks to Clint Eastwood and has a smirk on his face, and he's kind of sort of saying, "You've done this before in the the only films." <laughs> it's a really knowing <laughs> knowing wink of that. So the way the the whole thing is set up and shot, and the music is very Leone, and it's that knowing wink. And I find that with Escape to Athena, it's one of the fun ways of watching it. After I've watched it, I mean, I've watched it several times now, from childhood to uh, to where I am now in in my uh, mid forties. And um, one of the ways I like to amuse myself watching it now is imagine Elliot Gould is some sort of time traveller. <laughs> because, <laughs> because it just doesn't it just doesn't fit does it and some of his lines i mean there's the line in it where he says um 20 years from now when the germans are selling volkswagens to the world and it's it's just yes. too too glib too pat it's like you've you've been you know <laughs> you, you know something mm. that others don't yeah <laughs> Yeah, completely. You can ha- watch this and have a, a sort of fun game of which of these stars other films have they like walked in from. Yeah, Because Gould is playing the whole thing like he's still in a Robert Altman movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's, now, he's I don't think he ever played anything else, really, did he? <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a, weird, there's a wonderful, weird um, little cameo from William Holden. Isn't there? Did you mm. spot that where he's, he's smoking the cigar and he's clearly the, the same character from Starlog Seventeen? And Elliot Gould comes up. Because yes, he's still here. <laughs> Again, <laughs> it's just like, like he knows, doesn't he? He knows. <laughs> he knows his war films, so it's kind of weird. It's like he's just been plucked from nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, very very odd that moment. Um, I think that the whole film, in a way, feels odd now, although not because of any shortcoming. It's just that I've long observed that that kind of all-star entertainment blockbuster war movie is one of those subgenres that just does not exist anymore, and it feels quite strange that it ever did. I mean, anyone can find a, a subgenre that finds strange, seems strange nowadays just by looking for things that are obviously taboo. You know, anyone can say, no, you couldn't get away with making an Italian cannibal movie these days. Well, yeah, no shit. Um, but when you look at something that is very mainstream, absolutely, as you say, Christmas dinner with the family watching, and that still feels like something that you you would make it now when people would say, you should be this tasteful, you know, you should be that, yeah. um, yeah. is, is it, it right to have this much fun with Nazi characters? I don't know. That's so true. I mean, and there are lines where 
you know, the boundaries of taste really cross over in this film as well, which I'm sure we'll discuss mm. later on. But for me, it's a measure of how far the war film had gone by this point because it's sort mm. of... The interesting thing about war films is they, they started cropping up immediately after the war. I mean, there was the propaganda yeah. films that were being made at the time, usually from Ealing and stuff like that. Um, and then after the war, a lot of them were sort of based on memoirs. You know, I was Monty's double and stuff like that. They're all like, yeah. um, now this story can be told, exclamation mark. You know? mm-hmm. um, so then they become a kind of entertainment, but it's sort of an entertainment that, you know, the the people who actually were involved in the conflict or the, the children or whatever could watch. And it becomes a weird kind of entertainment of a very real open wound almost yeah um then this changes a bit in the 60s because you get films like guns and Navarone, where eagles Dare, all the alistair mclean novels that suddenly the bit they are packaged as entertainment and you can find yeah. a lot of you can draw a line from those films to the james bond films they're very very similar yeah um they play into the similar genre tropes they have similar um uh ways that they deal with suspense and espionage and what have you the the, the spy films set in the war basically aren't they they're the mm, sort of wartime yeah. bond movies and then you get to the 70s and i don't think the films are bringing in as much as they used to but there's still a weird audience for them and they're trying to modernize it as they go so you get films like force 10 from navarone which has um edward fox and robert shaw but also Harrison Ford and Carl Weathers from the Rocky movie. And um, Harrison Ford had just come off the back of Star Wars. So they're, they're obviously trying to have an eye on like the next generation. This is very, very similar because of that hodgepodge of casting. Because you've got, I mean, you, your yeah. biggest name there is Roger Moore. I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge cast, but your big name is Roger Moore, really, isn't it? And he is Bond at that time. So that's, that's, that's gold, really, isn't it? Everybody's going to watch that because it's got yeah. one of the biggest names in cinema. Um, and it's weird to think that Roger Moore was once one of the biggest names in cinema, but he was, and he was brilliant. <laughs> and brilliant as a self-effacing man um, to, to be that. But yeah. to me, these are like, it's like a mark of like, the war films have become almost like a, a star-studded panto rather yeah, than... Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think it fits brilliantly for Christmas because it is that kind of, it's 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 that transition of like your parents have become your grandparents and the children and every generation because we're looking at three generations there every generation are getting something out of this film or films like this. And I think one of the things that shifted it culturally is the thing you mentioned a bit back is Star Wars because yeah by the mid seventies you've got a, a, an audience, a cinema audience that is generationally fractured. You have a young audience who, for whom war means Vietnam, for whom war means a very painful, divisive thing that we lost, at least in you know American yeah. terms. Yeah. And part of what Star Wars did that is kind of underreported isn't just that it invented the modern blockbuster it's that it basically took all of the fun bits of a war movie and put it in an environment where politics and real life suffering weren't important 
So this is very much that kind of war movie on the way out. It's 79. Everyone's looking forward to the second Star Wars film. The the mania that was caused, the craze by the... Uh, the airing of the Star Wars Holiday Special, the greatest <laughs> piece of Star Wars media, is, is just a year old. Um, and, and so it goes into this Baroque period, doesn't it, where yeah. everything, all of the familiar ingredients are there, but they're pushed a bit further. They've become a bit weird. Yeah, that that is very true. And I think you, you reach the, the critical point is Escape to Victory a couple of years later. Where mm. not only do they have let's have a star-studded cast of like Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone, but we'll throw a shitload of professional footballers in the mix as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just, just just bizarre now, really, isn't it? But it, it and it's weird that that is. I think that play. I think because it's about football, it plays into our national psyche more than Escape mm. to Athena probably does. But they're both very kind of similar sort of starry pantos. Um, Escape, last... Escape to Victory. It's always worth remembering that Escape to Victory is a film from the director of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. You think, what the fuck? Bizarre, absolutely <laughs> bizarre, isn't it? It's the it's the weirdest choice ever. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> There's an entire podcast um, dissecting that a whole. There's a whole series of podcasts dissected Escape to Victory, I think, isn't there? And how it's it's... Got to be, there's got to be a pop star in it somewhere. I can't believe you can have a cast that random and not just throw, yeah. I don't know, Sheena Easton in there yeah, or something. Is, yeah, we'll have to look into that and see whether anybody did actually have mm. a, a minor pop hit. Maybe one of the European actors involved might have had a, a small <laughs> hit in like Papa Bendy from the Eurovision or something. <laughs> But yeah, that I, I completely agree. It is that point, and then I think Escape to Victory is the last sort of um, war movie of its of its kind, really. And we don't really do, like you said, we don't really do them. We don't do war movies to that way. I mean, I know Tarantino did Inglorious Bastards, which is quite starry, you know, and it does have that weird sort of stunt casting of um, Mike uh, Mike Myers, Mike Myers, yeah, and yeah. Um, I think originally Adam Sandler was going to be. Um, he was, yeah, as yeah, well, in yeah. the Eli Roth role. Yeah, but the um, yeah, it just isn't done anymore. There was one a few years back. Well, I say a few years back, probably about ten years back now, called The Last Drop, which was a straight-to-video okay. thing. It was really cheap, and that had um, that had a weird cast of like Sean Pertwee, um, Rafe Spall, Lawrence Fox as a Nazi, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Little did we know at the time, but uh, <laughs> uh, Billy Zane um, and also David Ginola. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think the thing that I thought could turn it around was when when Christopher Nolan did Dunkirk. I thought, ah, he is something. He is someone who is doing a summer release big blockbuster war movie that is, you know it did go on to be nominated for Oscars and I'm sure they were hopeful that it would be nominated for Oscars, but that wasn't the point. It wasn't 1917. It wasn't a sort of auteur driven film about the horrors of war. It's a big old take your family summer war movie. And that did very well, but for some reason it sparked no imitators as far as I can tell. No, that's true. Yeah. I mean, 
the only imitation it probably spat was Darkest Hour, wasn't it? We suddenly bogged yeah. down in this Brexit baiting um, <laughs> wave your flag sort of movie making instead, rather than um, let's just do good war films. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this, it's kind of this is sort of like is it a war film or a caper film? It, or an yeah. action comedy. It's 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 a weird. You could throw this. There's there's a huge melting pot here, and not just the cast, isn't there? I mean, it, yeah, it, it's a huge melting pot of ideas, anyway. And I think Grade said afterwards something like it would have been more successful if we toned down the comedy and focused yeah. on the action. Yeah, as good as Elliot Gould is, and as fun mm. as he is in it, um, if they'd toned it down a bit and just gave it a bit more oomph in terms of um, action. I've just realised Roger Moore has a huge bit in this film where he says oomph, and I've just said oomph. <laughs> <laughs> what is oomph, girl? <laughs> that, that's the most extraordinary thing, isn't it? That's one of the things that detoxifies it the most, is that Roger Moore plays a Nazi, and it, it's one of what Mark Kermode calls the Meg Ryan is a helicopter pilot moment, isn't it? <laughs> as soon as you describe it, your immediate reaction is just, no, they're not. Yeah. That's not what happened. Yes. Yeah. And he's not, he's not like, he, he, is he Is he SS or is he Wehrmacht? I can't remember now, innit? But he, oh, I can't remember either. I think the uh, point of saying is he Wehrmacht, yeah. I think, yeah, because yeah, Anthony Valentine is SS, isn't he? And, and mm. Anthony Valentine is basically playing the same part he played in um, Colditz. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he, he's the SS, isn't he? Yeah, he's Wehrmacht, but they make a point of saying he's Wehrmacht and he's Austrian. So, <laughs> so that's the accent. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. So the sympathy that oh, no, we can't criticise Roger Moore's lack of Germanic accent when you've got Michael Caine in The Eagle Has Landed, <laughs> who is who, who is basically reminiscent of Buster Merrifield in Only Fools and Horses, speaking German, <laughs> when he just goes, "What is your name?" <laughs> 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 even with the uh, I guess it goes by what you'd now call, you know, Chernobyl rules, Grand Budapest Hotel rules, where the actors just speak in their natural accents uh, yeah. for the most part and there you go, that's that, it's artifice, who cares? Yeah. But Mua has this amazing bit early on where Elliot Gould has been like walking through the prison camp doing all of this well, a shtick, he calls it shtick. Yeah. He's like a, a fast-talking New York stand-up. He's Fuzzy Bear, um, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. He's even got the hats. He's Fuzzy Bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a moment where he's introduced to uh, Roger Moore as Otto Hecht, this Wehrmacht captain with the non-more Germanic name. <laughs> and I think we're meant to be very impressed that Hecht works out that this guy's Jewish when it's like <laughs> how could you miss it <laughs> I mean, you not talking he, he was just shy of pulling down his trousers and showing his <laughs> we are not talking about Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards here this isn't the great detective of the Nazis that we're dealing with <laughs> It's so true, isn't it? But that, I mean, they are the lines of bad taste that I think are drawn mm. in this film. There's a lot of reference to the fact that he's Jewish and that Stephanie Powers... I mean, we should explain that 
Golden Powers are um, the what they call the US USO US overseas yes. um, overseas entertainers. So they're sort of like lower tier vaudeville acts to entertain the troops, aren't they? Yeah, uh, yeah. But what, what we had, we called the Mensa, didn't they? But they, I think they were USO. Um, and and obviously their their plane has been shot down, and on you know between gigs, um, and they are now in this prisoner of war camp in the fictional island, Greek island of Athena. It's Rhodes. It's Rhodes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mistakenly Rhodes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, so he's sort of like. He's a bit seedy, Roger Moore, isn't he? Let's face it. He wants Stephanie Powers. And it's sort yeah. of like his blackmail thing is, is, is basically like, play play nice for me. Otherwise, you know, Anthony Valentine in the SS will find out that Elliot Gould's Jewish and yeah. dot, dot, dot. And it's kind of creepy, horrible, bad taste moments in a film that is otherwise very light and breezy. Um, yeah. And the fact that between Moore and Powers develops a really genuine affection and he gets the girl at the end of the film, you kind of think, yeah, but he was pretty fucking mm. creepy at the beginning. And it, it, it's a real about face in this film that Roger Mosley just becomes incredibly sympathetic. Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah. And it's like the lines of seediness... You know, you, you say seediness, I think that's a good word for it. There isn't really any sex and there isn't really any violence, but there's a kind of seediness to bits of it. Yeah, I mean, the whole camp breakout yeah. is played along this really tacky striptease that Stephanie Powers in, like, Betty Grable uh, cheesecake sort of fashion uh, plays out, yeah. which sees... Um, I mean, if you ever want to see Grangel's Mr. Bronson <laughs> spunk in his pants then this is the film for you really <laughs> and who hasn't <laughs> uh, that's a Michael Shirt who was an absolute Nazi specialist yes, wasn't he yeah. in, uh, in his career yeah. yeah, he's not playing Hitler here he's playing a really clumsy sort of um, Hogan's Heroes style uh, little fat sergeant isn't he <laughs> Very Himmler-esque glasses, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, um, we could lose again. There's an entire podcast series here to be had in like Michael Sheard plays German dot dot dot. You know, there's, there's <laughs> yeah. every, particularly this era, every sort of action war movie had Michael Sheard pop up as a German. In the same way that yeah. the year, the era before that, it was Anton Diffring playing some sort of like thin-lipped Nazi officer as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but it's sort of, it's one of those things, isn't it, where we expect the Nazis to be a bit seedy, and of course they are, because this is, where, when you're dealing with Nazis in, like, mass market fiction, obviously you can't get into the Holocaust. You can't get into the real reasons why the Nazis were evil. So they just tend to get portrayed as being a bit pervy instead. And, and, <laughs> You yeah. kind of expect that. I yeah. mean, there is one minor Nazi in here who struck. He, he pronounces the word prostitute in exactly the manner of with nails Uncle Monty. <laughs> prostitute. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it is. I mean, like I say, they, they allude to the nastiness, they allude mm. to the real horrors of the Holocaust, but really. Um, 
this is we're, we're talking base level Nazi sort of behavior, which is sort of, as you say, seedy, a bit pervy. Um, mm. The most horror we see is Anthony Valentine basically rounding up Greek villagers and shooting them for no, yeah. no discernible reason. Um, you know, and which I, I suppose sells it. It sells the reason that these are yeah, monsters, yeah. you know, and Anthony Valentine is very good in this. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it, on the whole, um, Michael Sheard, Roger Moore, quite harmless figures, really, in it, aren't they? <laughs> Completely, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, even if they weren't, the lines of that kind of seediness are blurred by the fact that the leader of the Greek resistance on this island is uh, Zeno. Uh, the Telly Savalas character who runs a, a brothel with his girlfriend, and you think it's, it, 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 I don't want to say it doesn't make sense. Zeno is not a paradox, Joker. All you Greek philosophy fans out there, <laughs> I'm sure we've got some of them in the audience. But it's like they're it, all it, sat there now going, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting 88 episodes for one finally <laughs> but it's like it, it's not bad it's just the kind of weird double standard that you sort of expect in a movie this yeah. either where it's like oh, oh the lads need a bit of recreation eh? a bit of slap and tickle and it's all oh, but the Germans the <laughs> Germans are depraved <laughs> I, mean, I, I think on one of my letterbox reviews, I because I do like Telly Savalas in this, and Claudia Cardinal as mm-hmm. his uh, his girlfriend, yeah. brothel keeper. Um, I think he's very good. Telly Savalas could be hit and miss in a lot of films, but I think he's quite good in this because yeah. he plays the the machoness, but it's not overbearingly macho Completely. in the way that a lot of his roles would be. You know, when he's stripped to the waist and sort of looking, so, you know, it's a yeah. bit, ooh, it's a bit, <laughs> a bit sleazy macho. Um, but yeah, I, I joke in one of my letterbox reviews that I'd love to have seen a sequel of To Escape to Athena in which um, Savalis and Cardinal are shot dead by um, the Allies on orders of Churchill and Roosevelt for being communists. <laughs> yeah. It would be a much darker film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Escape to Athena, the sequel, Operation Gladio. Yes. It would be a much darker film, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned Cardinal because she's an actress I always have a lot of time for. And of course, she has this incredible career, you know, like, like any savvy Italian actor of her generation. She knew that there was a generation of directors coming up like Fellini and Visconti who could give her extraordinary parts and she was in some of their best remembered film. But to me, Cardinal's real genius is that she is able to be the token woman in a macho adventure film without being boring. These are not interesting parts, but you look at Cardinal in Once Upon a Time in the West, you look at her in Fitzcarraldo, she's magnetic, she's yeah. really good, and I'm not sure where those roles would work with anyone No, that, that is very true. And I think, there's, like you say, there is not a lot on paper here, but mm. what she brings to it um, suggests that there is a lot going on or that there is a, there has been a lot leading up to this moment for her. And whether yeah. that is because she brings baggage of other roles, other similar roles, 
uh, helps to because again these are it's a starry cast most of them are playing to the key strengths so yeah you know again she's playing to her, her own key strengths so that sort of sells that character in the way that um we know Roger Moore's going to turn good because he's James Bond. We know yeah. David Niven's going to be charming and urbane and a, a sort of dramatic centre in the film because of course. it's David Niven. You know, yeah. it, even when everything gets silly all around you, you've got David Niven as your, your sort of through line of like somebody's taking it seriously and there is something sort of you know there is a plot to follow here through through his uh, through his sort of reactions to to what's going on around him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also helps that for all they are in a, a kind of insalubrious profession, I think it's quite sweet that the film depicts Savalas and Cardinal as having a pretty loving relationship. And, you know, they end the film dancing together. I, I sort of wanted to dub Gangnam Style <laughs> that dance. I think it's just got that vibe to it. <laughs> I think Telly just wanted... I mean, I know um, Stephanie Powers is saying we don't, nobody knew why Telly was there. He wanted to do that dance, basically. I think. <laughs> and that dance is choreographed by none other than Arlene Phillips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Strictly for of... dancing's Arlene Phillips, yeah. Yes, yeah. For the listeners who are unaware, Arlene Phillips was one of the original four judges on Strictly Come Dancing. She also choreographed another film that I'm sure we'll do on pop screen at some point. And she uh, was hot was gossip as well. Music. Oh, yes, yeah, she was. Music, yeah. yeah, hot gossip. Can't stop the music. music. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is some nice sort of um, offset photos of uh, her with Elliot Gould and Stephanie Powers. And a wonderful um, offset photo, which I presume was... Suppo- I, 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 can't, I can't wonder why it was taken, actually, to be honest, because it's, it's Roger Moore in full Nazi uniform doing the Nazi salute uh, on Greek ruins and behind him somebody has written fuck Hitler on the wall and every, cool. every shot that he's in covers up either the F or the U <laughs> and it's it's wonderful I mean it's wonderfully done but I can't imagine that selling the film because there's no denying that that is fuck <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at what point do you sell a film based on like that kind of word in like newspapers at the time? I don't, I can't see what. Well, you, unless it was just a laugh. It, it maybe was, but do, do you think that's maybe also part of the sort of thinking behind casting Google that they are saying to this new kind of countercultural audience? It's okay. It's not quite your dad's war movie. Yeah. You know, there's a bit of swearing. There's one of those sort of long-haired wise acres that you guys like these days in it bit of bit bit of sexy stuff you know yeah and it's strange because like if this was made five years earlier or six years earlier it would chime really well but because it's 1979 that kind of thing's lost yeah isn't it? and it's it's, yeah. sort of, it's on the way out already that kind of um and like i say he could have been gould could come out like donald Sutherland, but in 
Kelly see us, but he's more like Fozzie Bear. And that is <laughs> that is the difference, isn't it? It's not countercultural. It's suddenly like cheesy vaudeville mainstream kind of thing, which is, is yeah, weird. it's 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 too late. And I think Luke Grade is just trying to market towards an audience he didn't really understand there. Which he's is... an interesting character, Luke Grade, isn't he? Because he understood Completely. 60s television brilliantly to the point yeah. that it was just cookie cutter television wasn't it every every series was more or less the same with more yeah. or less the same actors in it every week it was, it was just a rep company of of like i'm doing the saint this week i'm doing randall and hopkirk deceased next week i'm doing the baron the week after that man in the suitcase the week after that and it yeah. ad infinitum but when it came to cinema he just didn't get it did he everything was always just a bit wrong and it's yeah I think it's 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 that classic case of someone assuming that they can port the genius that they had in one medium over to another, which in practice very rarely works. I mean, I've done nearly 90 episodes of a series about pop stars trying to do exactly that. And let me tell you, if anyone is qualified to say it very rarely works, <laughs> it is me. True, that is true. That is very true, yeah. But yeah, I mean, he had some weird sort of titles and they're not... I think it's because it's our generation that, that who grew up with them watching them on television on like a bank holiday or a Christmas or something like that, that they, that they have a residual affection for. But these are not great films by any stretch of the imagination. They're fun films, but they're not yeah. great films. I mean, there's... There's Raise the Titanic, the Cassandra. That's classic. a classic example, isn't it? Yeah. The Titanic. It was such a bomb. Yeah. I mean, and it's weird to think that it's based on a Clive Cussler novel, which and it's a, a series of Clive, Clive Cussler novels that apparently do very, very well. I think mm. later on there was one called Is it Sahara with Matthew McConaughey? Yes. It's the same character, but you, you, they're just light years away from each other out there it's like you could, yeah. you could picture that being in the franchise of, of films you know it's just completely different tone style era setting um and, and Kussler was furious about that there were lawsuits flying all over the place right. about Sahara that right. you know the he thought they'd ignored all of his guiding counsel about how this character should be portrayed. Right, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't. I'm not even sure if I've watched it. It just come off as a very sort of romance in the stone ripoff, really, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Luke Ray did some weird films in the seventies, and like I said, there's a residual affection for them, but they're not great movies by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you talk about it generationally, I think there is a, a generation that we belong to with that kind of older millennial Gen X crossover who were always shocked when they hear that Raise the Titanic was a massive flop because you know, we remember it being on telly all the time. Yeah. It was pretty successful. Otherwise, why is it on telly all yeah. the time? And I could never compute like the cast list that he'd assemble for these films. So why why <laughs> was it crap? You know, why why did it flop? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Cassandra crossing has got like Richard Harris, Sophia Loren, OJ Simpson before, obviously, you know what? <laughs> um and the same as this film as well, you know. I mean even Farewell My Lovely with uh, Robert Mitchum, on paper that should work fantastically, but it just doesn't really 
it's got a perfect bit of casting, but it's like it feels like a sketch, doesn't it? Farewell, my lovely. It feels like it should be introduced by someone going, "What would Robert Mitchum be like in Farewell, my lovely?" <laughs> I think it would go a little like this. It's true. It's true. And although, like with a lot of noir films, um, the voiceover is always going to be an issue in a post Frank Drebin world. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it just always puts in mind Police Squad, but unlike a lot of noir films, Fowler, Fowler, lovely, really doesn't escape that. When when Mitchum says that line about she had a look that registered in my hip pocket, you know, it's it's just Frank Drebin. It's not Chandler. <laughs> it's not. It's just Frank Drebin, and there's no escaping it. But yeah, that's another no. example of Lou Gray being too late in terms of yeah casting. Mitchum would have been a perfect Philip Marlowe 20 years earlier, but yeah, 1975, it's just, he's too old. Yeah. And now they're making the same mistake, casting Liam Neeson as Marlowe in a, a film set in 1939. Oh, yeah, is that, that's not Neil Jordan. It's Neil Jordan, yeah. Friend, Neil Jordan. Um, yeah. Previously discussed um, on, on, this very, uh, on this very podcast, yeah, Neil Jordan, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when he did the Butcher Boy. Yeah, um... I mean, cast cast Liam Neeson by all means, but try and do like a Poodle Springs thing to it and have him in like the late fifties or the early sixties. But cast him in nineteen thirty nine just doesn't make. Any well, sense. A, I think with Chandler in general, you've got that problem that um, that again going back to Robert Altman, he described when he was making Gosford Park, where he said. You know, I'd, I wanted to do a country house murder mystery. I thought that would be fun to do. So me and Bob Balaban got together and we read all of the Agatha Christie novels and all of the short stories and plays, and we concluded that there was not a single thing it makes that had not been mined out yeah. by film and television. And currently, Kenneth Branagh is busy proving that that is the case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's like I, I love. Chandler, you know, I think Chandler is a genius, but I think the only way you can go with those novels is to do something inspired by them rather than actually adapt them. Yeah, I think the the adaptations that were produced at the time he was active are so iconic that you can't, even if you're Robert Mitchum, who you would think would be able to break this issue, you know, even Robert Mitchum comes off as someone play acting. Yeah. That's true. And of course, the, the elephant in the room here is that, you know, you've just mentioned Altman. And Elliot Gould is one of the subjects of this podcast. And they are the, the perfect marriage for um, probably the best sort of outside of um, The Big Sleep or Murder My Sweet, as it was retitled with Dick Powell. The best one mm. is, um, is The Long Goodbye, absolutely. Because it makes absolutely no effort to replicate the mood of the forties adaptations. Yeah, that's and it's just in a way that, like previously, um, they did a modern day one with James Garner called Marlowe that just didn't work either. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, it just hit gold. That really just hit Gould. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, we've sort of distracted away from the point, really, haven't we, uh, already? We've wandered off, but I will say this. We're talking about films that are too late. And yeah. I think looking back, it is very obvious that 
you know, you could have made an unironic flag-waving war movie that didn't have all this comedy business in 79, because it's the dawn of the Reagan era. You know, people are ready for that played straight with no sops to the counterculture anymore. People are ready for it. And one of the people who cleaned up with exactly that kind of movie is George P. Cospitos, the director who went on to direct Rambo First Blood Part 2. Yeah, that's true. Um, he had an interesting career, didn't he? <laughs> he is ta- yeah, he's taken very seriously now, Cosmatos. He's one of those 80s action directors who, I, I guess maybe because he was never like as consistently successful as a James Cameron or a John McTeon and people think there's something to discover there, you know, there's yeah. something that they have to champion and people like that, people do i found feel that way towards george p cosmatos yeah i mean if you look at if we're looking specifically at is is the genre that we're discussing here which is the war movie um mm. you've got it's, it's a very interesting through line from like the 70s to yeah. the 80s because you've got massacre in rome which is a very doer um procedural story of um basically uh, a Nazi genocide of, uh, of Italian people because of um, a partisan attack on a, an SS squad. So yeah. basically just round up as many Italians as we can and murder them in, uh, in a, a mine in, uh, in Rome, you know. Um, yeah. So that's very dour, procedural, um, quite dull uh, film, <laughs> really. And then you've got this, which is anything but that. And then you've got the jingoistic, yeah. flag-waving Rambo films that followed. It's 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 a strange. Um, it's it's a very strange career. Of the three, I'm always going to stick with this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, because it's because it's fun, um, and also I think it's probably one of his better directed movies. Actually, I don't think it gets enough credit as a nicely shot movie. I think there's some stunning um, cinematography from uh, is it Jill Taylor or Gil Taylor. Mm. Um, beautiful aerial shot at the beginning. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that opening uh, is part, part of part of the sort of wonder's been took out of it maybe for newer audiences because nowadays you'd just assume it was a drone. Yeah, but yeah. He's presumably up there in a helicopter directing an action scene on the ground it is incredible yeah it's yeah. a fantastic it's, piece of direction. it's beautiful it is absolutely beautiful um dan also what is rightly regarded as one of the best motorcycle chases ever committed to, to celluloid i think it's one great. one person um rated it third after um the Great Escape and another one which is Skyfall. Skyfall, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, we're we're not talking small potatoes here. It's and it is a genuinely good motorcycle chase. Um, Absolutely. If, if anybody yeah. has is any if, if anybody's into the um, the motorbike stunts and they've never seen this film, put down mm. your bacon butty and, uh, and put this <laughs> on immediately because it is a brilliant brilliantly shot sequence the only problem i have with it is um it's elliot gould doing it and i don't understand the logic of this why does <laughs> why does telly savalis a hard-bitten um partisan stage uh 
a hit on Anthony Valentine and his death squad of Nazi officers and then suddenly shouts to the guy who is cowardly Bob Hope comedian to get on a bike, <laughs> chase after Anthony Valentine, the prize of this whole you know hit, and murder him. <laughs> wouldn't you do that yourself? Wouldn't you... <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't you wouldn't you sort of trust yourself to do that rather than a bloke you've just had to teach how to use a gun <laughs> i mean what logic just dictates that i mean that is one of those where i wonder if they went no well, you've got to have you've got to give elliot Gould this bit this is the big bit mm. he's he's like you know the big property here his name comes in at the end of the credits with and elliot gould as charlie you've got to with a nice little writing of charlie not just as you know signature style writing on the credits you've got to give him yeah. the big the big moment but it just make it doesn't make a lick of sense as to why you would trust a bloke who is a comedian <laughs> It does, in a weird way, it does make the scene more suspenseful. It does, yeah. You're thinking, I don't believe this guy can ride a fucking bike, let alone <laughs> one of these. And again, I've mentioned Fools and Horses twice now in this podcast. But <laughs> you know that bit where, um, I think it's in the Heroes and Villains episode, where Rodney chases after the mugger, and then he orders <laughs> him, and then the mugger looks at him thinking... I can take you. And then, <laughs> then next thing you see Rodney running away. It's one of those. You wonder if that's how it's going to end. <laughs> well, there's lots of things in it which do not pay off in the way you expect. I mean, all the way through, I was thinking there's got to be a twist where Roger Moore turns out to be a British double agent, right? Cause... Would make more sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 And the biggest twist of all, and although, you know, he's the main reason we're talking about this, we've not mentioned it yet. The biggest twist of all, Sonny Bono doesn't sing in it. Yes, it's it's quite a weird role for him to take because there's not much to it, I think. Also, he's a fucking racing car driver. Get him to chase after Anthony Valentine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Make yes, any don't. sense? <laughs> he's supposed to be an Italian prisoner of war who's a racing driver, a cook, and sometimes I sing, he says, but never gets to sing. <laughs> That is weird, isn't it? Because that line of dialogue surely only exists to explain why he'll be singing later on in the movie. Except, as he said, he doesn't. He gets that moment at the the camp show that is sort of like... um, And if you want to know the difference between this and a film like Massacre in Rome, it's the fact that the camp breakout involves, um, you know, Stephanie Powers shaking a tatars at Michael Shear to the point that he's fit to bust. Meanwhile, <laughs> everybody else is fit to bust because the uh, David Niven and all them lot have fed them laxatives. Mm. That, yes. that, that, <laughs> I mean, it's like Beano has written a war film at this point, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but Sonny Bono in it is not just Italian. He's like very Italian. Is he? Yeah, <laughs> Every single thing you're like scrutinising. The sort of, where, where's the pasta and meatballs? Yeah, that seems yeah. to be the one bit that isn't here. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's basically the influence on those um, ragu puppets in the 90s. <laughs> I'll tell you why I had an unexpected thought about Sonny Bono. It's that I don't think he's very good in this. I will. No. <laughs> he's nice. He's 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 cute. Yeah. He's um, but he's not. He's not very good. And like you say, he gets oh. his big moment to sing at that camp show, 
and he's just miming yeah. to a, a, a record that Elliot Gould is playing on a gramophone, a wind-up gramophone. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I thought he would be really good at when I watched this. It, it Maybe this is one of the things that he could have done if he wasn't a Republican, but I don't know. But he, he has that big droop piece of pattern moustache, and I thought, you would be a great stoner comedian. Put this guy in a Cheech and Chong movie, yeah. and he just fits in perfectly yeah yeah yeah. that's so true that is so true incidentally his wikipedia page has a bit about his acting roles this film isn't mentioned (laughs) wow so we've we've gone for the obscure one of the sunny born and i sat reading i sat reading that wikipedia page and thinking i don't know any of the i've heard i've heard well troll i've heard of never watched it ah yes Uh, but the rest i'm like no no idea sorry don't know (laughs) And you don't mention this one that's on every Christmas. <laughs> Weird that. There is one way, and I think this could be a nice closing thought, but there is one way in which Sonny Bono had perhaps more influence over modern Hollywood than anyone else I can think of. Did he tell Sher she could act? <laughs> I mean, probably, yes. Probably but. Did, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> But Sonny Bono's signature piece of legislation when he oh, was yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was he a senator or a congressman or he's a, he's a representative. Yeah, yeah. He was in the House of Representatives. His signature piece of legislation was the Copyright Extension Act, which meant that all of those pre-war characters like Mickey Mouse and Batman, who would otherwise be well out of copyright by now, could still be under a uh, 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 studio's contract and it's it's impossible to think about what movies now would be like if that legislation hadn't passed i think true yeah yeah you could have an entirely different person making mickey mouse movies <laughs> yeah yeah it's weird isn't it yeah yeah i think it it passed after his death didn't it i think he was he was campaigning for it for a long time and then I think uh, his widow helped sort of like push it over the line after his death. Died in a very tragic skiing accident, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, I remember that. That must have been... 1998. I was going to say, I thought I remembered it happening. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You see, he's a likeable... I mean, for a Republican, he's he's (laughs) a likeable... He's a likeable person, isn't he? There's a screen presence that's really likeable. Um, I yeah. learned yesterday, looking at his Wikipedia, that he wrote, he co-wrote Needles and Pins, which I didn't know. Ah, yeah, so I didn't um, know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. So it's because I mean he was very, very good writing with uh, when he was Sunny and Cher, wasn't it? Some beautiful yeah. songs there. But um, now I didn't know if his career sort of outside of that or beyond before it. Um, not at all. Yeah. Uh, speaking of music, we have to mention um, Lalo Schifrin has a brilliant score in this film as well. Yes, it's and a that really good Greek-infused, evocative score, isn't it? It's gorgeous. It's it's one of those things where the most of this movie gives you sort of mixed feelings about this era of war movies and how well they worked. But there are some things in it that really make you think, "Oh man, I do wish they still made them like that." And Lalo Schifrin is one of them. I don't think any other era would hire Lalo Schifrin. No. to Scott soundtrack a war movie no. you know he's too smooth he's too easy but it works gorgeously it's i mean 
that sort of jangly sort of um, Greek sort of ding 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 you know, it gets very Zorba the Greek, doesn't it? Gangnam style, yes. But also that constant refrain of when the saints go marching in as well, which is really clever. And as a as a Centellinzer, that's that's always a big score for us because that's that's our anthem for the rugby league club. Whenever you hear that, it's automatically it's a bit of civic pride, really. Maybe that's why I like this film. I don't know. They always had that, didn't they? The the war movies from like the immediate post war either. They generally built their scores around some old folk song or marching. Yeah, song you've or... got like Colonel Bogey for um, Bridge on the River Kwai and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. I've also got to mention the title of this film as well, Escape to mm-hmm. Athena, because it sounds vaguely generically war movie, but then you realise that it's the wrong word, isn't it? It should be Escape from Athena, not to Athena. Yeah, I kept calling it Escape from Athena when I was researching this, and I just could not stop myself. Yeah. It's so strange, isn't it? And then you realise that it's it's a travelogue, so of course you're going to call it Escape to Athena, because it just feels like a summer brochure, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, so, Escape and, to the Sun. And then there's that, there's that wonderful coda at the end, isn't there, it's set in the present day? Where they're sort of like showing you like the uh, the relics that were unearthed in the archaeological dig and the the gold that they uh, they got back from um, the Nazis, and it's just like modern day tourists just sort of like standing yeah. on a on a, a spot where previously you've just seen Telly Savalas and Elliot Gould, <laughs> <laughs> and that again music Heatwave. Uh, have that song at the end called a very disco song, isn't it? Um, keep oh, yeah. Keep Tomorrow for Me, I think it was called. It's a very um, soul disco type thing. It's, 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 it works well, though, doesn't it? It's, boogie, like it's, it's, it's boogie nights, isn't it? It's, it's basically, it is. It's basically Heatwave doing boogie nights again, yeah. yeah. And it's it, you've spent so long in this sort of very particular kind of world, which is sort of World War II, but also kind of 60s in its styling because it's harking back to those big entertaining war movies like The Great Escape. And then suddenly, right at the end, you've got the one thing in it that is unmistakably 70s and it feels like a good thing to usher you out with. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it's um, it's nice. And it, when I watch it now, it does remind me of sort of like being a kid in like roughly that time only a couple of years later or first up like foreign holiday and you just yeah it just looks like that it just reminds me of that and it's quite sweet really yeah it's, um, it's quite weird. The last film I watched that reminded me of sort of taking foreign holidays was After Sun, and it's quite weird that the one set in the German World War Two prisoner of war <laughs> camp is like the least harrowing one of those two. <laughs> And also, what does it say about my holiday experiences as a child? That I'm... <laughs> <laughs> it's when you've done Botlins and Pontins, you know, a film set in a sunny World War II holiday camp where um, David Niven's an archaeologist and uh, <laughs> Sonny Bono might be a racing car driver and Richard Roundtree's a circus stuntman. What the fuck? <laughs> that is, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. That yeah what What? i don't know was he and he's clearly american so what was he doing there it doesn't make any sense the unflappable richard roundtree (laughs) the man who was shaft he just gets to smoke that big fuck off cigar in that um 
in the bit where he gets discovered, isn't he, with the white towel over his head in the the steam baths, which is fucking a pretty fucking cool entrance, really, isn't it? Yeah, that that feels like a bit that was in his contract. Yeah, yeah. Can I do my shaft bit now? Yeah. yeah. If James Bond is going to help Kojak, Kojak win the affections of the girl from Uncle, then. <laughs> <laughs> then you've got to have Shaft have his moments as well. Completely. <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up for this week. Is there anything else that you'd like to sneak in before we... Uh... Uh, no, all I will say is fair play to the stuntmen as well, who just yeah. constantly fall from rooftops and bell towers in the swan dives. Everybody just seems to exist to get shot from a great height. Yes. And then fall and do that sort of Edvard Munch scream as they go down as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, including the great Vic Armstrong. He yeah. Was, uh, he, um, on this. Didn't he speak of the, the motorbike chase? I think he choreographed that, didn't he, as well, which is um, yeah. perfect. I think that's, that's a lesson more modern directors could stand to learn, that you don't have to direct everything yourself. So I've watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes over Christmas, and I, I came away convinced that it is the great American movie musical. But Howard Hawks was like, I, I don't know how to do dance numbers. Yeah, yeah. I didn't direct any of that stuff. I, I left it to the choreographer to do that. And you think, yeah, beautiful. Collaborate. You know, if you've got yeah. an expert yeah. on set, listen to the expert. Absolutely. I watched um, Pennies from Heaven over Christmas and came away thinking that is not the great Hollywood musical. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even the great Hollywood revisionist musical. <laughs> it's just shit. <laughs> I've never seen the film version of Pennies from Heaven. Yeah. I've seen the the Chris Walken routine, yeah. which I get the impression that that is the bit you have to see. Best but... bit in it. Best bit in it. Yeah. yeah. The rest is. I mean, everything that Dennis Potter got right with. Um, I should say the late great Piers Haggard, who sadly died last week. Everything he got right at the time of filming, obviously. Everything he got right. Um, adapting Dennis Potter's work for the BBC series. Um, can't even remember the name of the guy who directed Pennies from Heaven. Is it Herbert Ross? Everything he, everything Haggard got right, he gets wrong. Um, to Bob, yeah, Bob Hoskins said, you know, he watched it and he thought that the problem is once you give it a Hollywood budget, you just think. Oh yeah, spend all your time in fantasy. It yeah. looks great. You know, it's an MGM musical. Yeah. Why, why bother living a real life? That's it. That's... That, that's absolutely it. I mean, there's a bit where even when they're trying to do like the reality, it starts off sort of like poverty row, Great Depression. But then there's a bit where they just put Steve Martin in um, Hopper's Nighthawks because yeah. why not? You know, and it's like, well, you've just pissed on your own chips, really, haven't you? Mm, yeah, very strange. Well, it's more uh, fun. watch watch Escape to Athena. It's more fun. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a better film? Yeah, probably. Yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I was going say, no, it's not. But yeah, probably is actually. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, uh, listeners, there should be a Patreon exclusive coming out the day after this airs. What's it going to be? I've got no idea. <laughs> I, I, 
underprepared for February. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, for a big reveal. What's it going to be? It's going to be. <laughs> it's going to be escape to victory when we find out that third footballer on the left had uh, <laughs> the 1968 Eurovision Song Contest entry for Bratislava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Null poire to me there, I think. But uh, of course, there will be another episode of Pop Screen out uh, in a fortnight's time. We're hoping, uh, at the time of recording, uh, it will be Dance Craze, the Scar concert movie with uh, madness and beat. And uh, of course, the late, great Terry Hall with the specials. But until then, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been a sympathetic Nazi officer. (laughs) We'll see you next week.